0: Here we go again. As the clock ticks down to the end of the year, a top-ranked Texas lawmaker poses 300 pages of tax changes. We'll hear why today on the Texas Standard.
1: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, SOFTWARE DELIVERED AS PROMISED. NO SURPRISES.
0: I'M DAVID BROWN. SOUTH OF THE BORDER DOWN ARGENTINA WAY, PRESIDENT TRUMP HEADED TO MEET WITH WORLD LEADERS FOR A SO-CALLED G20 SUMMIT. WHY THAT COULD PROVE A TIPPING POINT FOR TEXANS WORRIED ABOUT OUR ECONOMY. ALSO, HOW MUCH ARE YOU PAYING FOR GAS? AS PRICES FALL, WHY SOME IN OIL COUNTRY MIGHT WELCOME A BIT OF A SLOWDOWN. AND COMMENTATOR WF STRONG OFFERS SOME TIPS FOR TEXAS TIME TRAVELERS. ALL THOSE STORIES AND A WHOLE LOT MORE AS THE TEXAS STANDARD GETS STARTED right after this no matter where you are it's texas standard time on this november twenty eighth I'm david brown thanks so much for spending a bit of your hump day with us feels like most of the news this week's been consumed by what's been happening at the border customs and border protection now saying there's an internal review of the use of tear gas on migrants near tijuana on sunday the optics alone figure into the politics of the moment as congress races to end one session and democrats in the house get set to take control if there is to be funding for that wall President Trump is pushing, the window of opportunity may fast be closing. Washington Post now reporting that the president is considering a plan B. No wall money? Well, he may continue using troops and razor wire at the border until there is. But in the more immediate future, what's happening far south of the border? Drawing a lot of attention right now. A summit planned for the weekend in Argentina, the so-called Group of 20 Industrialized Nations. At that meeting, the leaders of the U.S., Mexico, and Canada will sign off on that renegotiated NAFTA deal, now known as USMCA. And The Guardian reports that in Mexico, there's outrage over plans announced by outgoing President Enrique Peña Nieto to use the occasion to bestow Mexico's highest honor, the Order of the Aztec Eagle, on one Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and advisor. Peña Nieto says the honor is to credit Kushner for his role in the NAFTA deal, but Mexican historian Enrique Krause is calling it a supreme act of humiliation and cowardice. Another reason the G20 is front and center, China and a trade war with the U.S. Sean Donnan has been writing about this for Bloomberg. Welcome to Texas Standard. No problem. Great to be here. Uh, what's at stake ahead of this proposed meeting with Xi Jinping. Well, I mean, we've been watching
2: this kind of develop uh, all year, this this trade war that we've all been reading about. And it's been hitting farmers. It's been hitting companies. Uh, it's uh, been hitting the stock market as well. Uh, we've got the the world's two largest economies uh, heading towards a major economic conflict. And now their leaders are going to sit down for dinner down in Buenos Aires in Argentina on Saturday. And um, we're all waiting to see what comes out of it.
0: I think that there have been a lot of assumptions made about uh, – possible one-on-one between uh, the Chinese president and and, and the U.S. president. Uh, is anything likely to come out of those conversations with respect to uh, perhaps a, a kind of ceasefire or some sort of truce over tariffs?
2: We don't know yet. Uh, what we're hearing from both sides is that they've been talking a lot, that they've been kind of trying to hash out what they might uh, be able to get out of this meeting. But really, the ceasefire that, that you mentioned there, the, the idea that you could have a pause in tariffs and these kind of tit-for-tat tariffs that have been going back and forth is the best-case scenario that people can hope for. I don't think we, we, we can expect a kind of the full um, peace deal in, in, in the trade wars to come out of this dinner on Saturday night. But what some people here in Washington are hoping is that you can get – and some people in the administration are hoping is that you can actually uh, get a, a pause in the trade war and, and some new talks uh and a process to try and sort out the differences. Uh,
0: now, I want to get back to a point that you are emphasizing in your piece for Bloomberg, and that is that as the president heads into this meeting, he's approaching uh, uh, Argentina with something that a few months ago would have seemed improbable, as you put it, allies. Who are those allies and how is that going to be a factor here?
2: One of the things that we've seen President Trump do since he, he went into office in January 2017 is really test a lot of longstanding alliances uh, that the U.S. has, particularly with the EU. Uh, he uh, has a habit of uh, turning to Twitter and, and slamming uh, European leaders. Uh, he has uh, We've heard him over and over again talk about his concerns uh, with the, the U.S. trade deficit with, with Europe, and he is this morning again uh, threatening to put tariffs on imported cars, which would hit Europe very hard. Um, likewise with Japan, he's really kind of pushed and prodded uh, Japan in a way previous American presidents haven't. But those alliances, when it comes to China, are, are, are kind of holding strong. And actually, we're, we're hearing more and more quietly the EU and Japan have been working with the U.S. Uh, to address some of the big concerns with China, because those are concerns that their companies and, and their governments share as well.
0: Obviously, the stock market has been reacting negatively to this since, I mean, depending on how you measure it, since at least October. I'm wondering how this hits Main Street. Uh, you know, you, you talk with folks here in Texas. We've seen a growing manufacturing sector that I think a lot of people feel has been slowed down uh, to at least some extent by worries, fears over tariffs themselves, uh, uh, if not uh, the actual tariffs.
2: Yeah, so tariffs are complicated. There's clearly some, you know, companies that benefit from tariffs. If you're a, a steel producer and and there's a, a big tax on imported steel, that that potentially helps you compete at home, but it hurts a lot of people. Tariffs hurt a lot of people as well, and, and we saw a lot of companies in the recent earnings season uh, on Wall Street report high costs uh, from tariffs. GM is a great example. GM this week announced uh, a, a series of layoffs uh, in, in the months ahead, some 14,000 jobs at stake, and one of the things that it has cited is uh, a billion-dollar cost that it is now bearing from higher steel and aluminum prices that it was of, of tariffs. So, you know, they can help some people. They hurt a lot of people as well.
0: Uh, if you were a betting person, you think uh, something good, positive is going to come out of this meeting or no?
2: It's really hard to say, but I think because of the stock markets and, and a lot of the concerns over the economic fallout potentially from this, there's a lot of reasons why Donald Trump wants a deal. There's also a lot of reasons why Xi Jinping wants a deal. And maybe that gets you to something like a ceasefire.
0: Sean Donnan is a senior writer for Bloomberg. Sean, thanks again. Thanks for having me. As the clock ticks down to the end of the lame duck session on Capitol Hill, a Texan is making noise about more tax cuts. And folks are paying attention, too, because of who that Texan happens to be, a certain current chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee who loses that seat once the Democrats take over the House in January. Earlier this week, Kevin Brady, the congressman from the Woodlands, unveiled a massive tax bill that reads like a GOP holiday wish list, extensions to expired tax breaks, tax relief for victims of natural disasters, a revamping of the IRS, and more, 300 pages worth. Naomi Jagoda reports on taxes for the hill. Naomi, welcome to the Texas Standard.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: This sounds rather massive. Three hundred pages of uh, of of tax changes released on Monday night. Uh, what stands out to you here? what what uh, could you give us a breakdown?
3: Yeah, this bill is um, consists of a number of different priorities that um, many lawmakers have sort of as a a year end bill to sort of tie up some loose ends. Part of it includes uh, renewing some tax breaks that expired in 2017. Mm -hmm. Other parts deal with uh, retirement savings. Um, There are provisions to make sort of technical fixes to uh, drafting errors in the big tax cut package that Republicans passed last year. Kind of a little bit of a hodgepodge of a whole bunch of tax priorities that Republicans would like to see passed by the end of the year.
0: I guess if you get enough uh, enough goodies in, in one bucket, you're likely to get a whole lot of supporters for it, or not so much. I mean, what are you hearing from folks on the Hill? Because after all, there is a certain uh, interesting aspect to the timing of this.
3: Yeah, well, Brady offered this bill in a way that, you know, he hoped that it could get bipartisan support. A lot of the provisions in this are things that Democrats have supported in the past, um, like some of the IRS revamp provisions, some of the tax extenders. But Democrats say they weren't consulted in the process of putting together the bill. They didn't see a copy of the bill until Brady issued a press release about it. So they're, they're sort of upset about the process of how the bill came together, um, which sort of makes them maybe less willing to support the bill.
0: Politics aside, as Toby Eckert, tax editor at Politico, explains, many Democrats haven't even had a chance to review the legislation.
4: Democrats, I should say, you know, are going through this bill still. We haven't gotten a lot of reaction from them. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're still waiting to see how much, if any of this, they can get on board with. We just talked to one senior member of the Senate tax writing committee, a Democrat, Ben Cardin from Maryland, and he said it would be extremely challenging to get this done in the remaining uh, days of the session.
0: So let's talk about what stands out to you, if we can, the specifics. How much specificity is there in these 300 pages? Does anything stand out to you?
4: Uh, It's pretty specific, and um, like... like members of Congress, we're still kind of going through it. But I think, you know, the things that stand out are some of the corrections that they want to do to things in the tax law that they passed last year that need to be fixed. Um, You know, some people are looking for for big fixes to that. Some people are looking for little fixes to various things in that. So, you know, that kind of stands out. Um, And I think Republicans would like to get that done before they slip into the minority in the House. And um, the other thing is uh, what are called tax extenders, which are basically a bunch of tax incentives that that are expired and that uh, various interest groups want to revive.
0: So what happens next with Brady's bill? Naomi Jacota of The Hill explains.
3: The House is likely to vote on this bill later this week. They are scheduled on Wednesday to uh, discuss this in the House Rules Committee. And then from there, it would go to the floor. But in the Senate side, it would need the support of some Democrats. And right now it doesn't look like it would get the support of some Democrats. So it's sort of unclear what the ultimate fate of this will be.
0: The voice of Naomi Jacota with The Hill and Toby Eckert, tax editor at Politico. Joining us once again in the studio, it's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar.
5: Hi, David. The Immigrant Youth Detention Center set up by the Trump administration in Tornillo, Texas, back in the headlines after an Associated Press investigation uncovering serious issues at the facility. The tent city, which holds over 2,300 teens now, does not require FBI fingerprint background checks for any of the 2,100 people that work with the miners there. The AP also cites a lack of counseling resources and ballooning costs, writing, What began as an emergency 30-day shelter has transformed into a vast tent city that could cost taxpayers more than $430 million. Via Twitter, AM Hot Flash tweets, The camp's nearly out-of-control growth could now attract child predators of all kinds. Kay D'Antonio is also concerned. She calls it likely that physical, sexual, and emotional abuse of children is happening right now in the Tornillo detention camp. And Polly tweets, I taught an adult yoga class in a YMCA once a week years ago. I had to have an FBI fingerprint and background check before I could work there because there were potentially children in the building, yet at Tornillo, where they are housing children, no check. Obviously, the story inspiring a lot of commentary out there, David. I'll be back with more from social media later in the show.
0: Indeed, we would love to hear from you. Tweet us at Texas Standard. Join the conversation on Facebook. Wells Dunbar is looking for you. He'll be back in 35 with more of the Talk of Texas.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be a force for the greater good, like Professor Liren Ma, who is developing a program to make an iPhone operate as an inexpensive hearing aid. TCU, lead on.
0: Business and your money on the standard. I'm David Brown. How much would someone have to pay you to run the Texas GOP? This weekend, leaders in the Texas Republican Party are considering what Texas Public Radio's Ryan Poppy tells us could be an historic vote, especially considering the job compensation at present.
6: Currently, the position of chair for the Republican Party of Texas is a two-year volunteer job. But the Republican Party's executive committee may decide to increase its annual budget, which includes establishing an annual salary of $150,000 for their leader. James Dickey is the party chair. He says between the midterm election that saw Republican losses and narrow wins and a demand that the state party increase its overall percentage of Republican votes during the 2020 election, it seems fair that the state party chair receive financial compensation. There are times when a volunteer relationship is
4: sufficient in are times when it is not the right solution for the problem we
6: are facing. Terry Holcomb, a North Texas member of the State Republican Executive Committee, is in favor of the proposal.
7: It has historically been a volunteer job, which has made it a part-time job. And we have simply come into a place in Texas politics where we need that position to be a full-time position.
6: But Morgan Cisneros-Graham, a committee member from Brownsville, worries about the transparency of the issue among Texas Republicans.
7: On the one hand, I understand the free market principle behind it, that by offering a salary, we could possibly attract better candidates to run for state chairman. However, I think that the biggest concern that people will have is the fact that this is not presented prior to the election itself.
8: Graham
6: says a better compromise would be to delay the vote until the next convention. The Republican committee plans to vote on the proposal at their meeting in Austin. For the Texas Standard, I'm Ryan Poppy.
1: Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com.
0: And you are listening to the Texas Standard. School overcrowding, soaring traffic fatalities, drug abuse, and strains on the power grid. Yeah, not exactly what most of us think of when we hear about boom times in oil country. Then again, if you live there 24-7, you know that the story of a boom in the oil patch is a whole lot more complicated than meets the eye. Well, now more than a dozen top U.S. energy companies have pledged to do something about it. They're putting out $100 million toward easing stresses on health care, education, and infrastructure. This... To the folks who are experiencing the shale, oil, and gas boom in West Texas and New Mexico, Bobby Burns knows all about it. He's president and CEO of the Midland Chamber of Commerce. Mr. Burns, thanks so much for taking some time to talk with us here on The Texas Standard.
7: Dave, I'm glad to be with you.
0: I'm a little bit surprised by the size and scope. $100 million. Did you get that right?
7: Well, you you did. Uh, It's uh, really a a major commitment for a, a group of uh, oil companies to uh, kind of look at what's going on out in west texas and uh, basically say we want to help where we can and find the right way so there's a lot going on out not only in midland but in the Permian basin why do this i mean
0: the fact of the matter is is you can continue to do what you do without having to make these investments and just count on state and taxes to take uh, take care of things
7: well in my opinion uh these oil companies and service companies are coming together to do this because it's in their best interest. They see the ability to make money, but they need people. And so to get more people to move out here, you need more schools, you need more roads, you need more infrastructure, you need more hospitals. Uh, And so they know know the impact is more than probably we can handle at the speed that they need.
0: Uh, You know, I was seeing a picture someone uh, posted not that long ago showing two sites of a highway that was sort of leading off into the horizon you know just a road going down one of these photographs was taken like i don't know eight years ago the other one was taken about uh i don't know two weeks ago and it showed how the roadway back then was all smooth and you know rather untraveled the next one it was all congested and there were potholes as far as you could see how common is something like that and does this money do anything to address those basic uh situations
7: Yeah, I think the money is there to to, uh, really address the wear and tear on highways and roads and infrastructure. So I think that's what they intend the money for. And you know what? It's easy, I think, for these oil and gas companies, whether it's 10 or 12 and now almost 18 companies that have come together, to say they're allotting money. It's different now to allot it to the Permian Basin and find the right priority. Because, you know, how do you establish those priorities? And you mentioned – that road that looks entirely different eight years earlier versus now, hmm. it really is different as you drive across Midland right now. I mean, we complain about traffic jams and and uh, if you're from Dallas, Fort Worth or Houston or another bigger city, it seems kind of silly, but uh, for here, it's a different environment. So we've seen the infrastructure really taxed and uh, it's a problem. You know, Midland, Texas has the chance to be the obby-dobby of west texas or the united states there's this amazing oil field out here and some amazing dollars are going to flow but how do we create this city that people want to live in Mm -hmm. and come to and uh that's the challenge you know the quality of place and our biggest challenge now is education you know how do we make our schools the best we could make them and so we've got our hands full on education we got our hands full on uh, hospital issues and obviously roads and quality of place issues because we can only be a great city if we can get people to come out here and i love midland but i'm also keenly aware that the rest of texas does not want to move out here so we've got to create a different city where uh, a different generation wants to make this their home.
0: i i hear what you're saying you got to get people out there but you know we're reading just this week there are some headlines that say that the job market's slow in there in the oil field and, and and i wonder how do you keep them there
7: even during the downturns of our history, going back to the '60s and even the '80s and early 2000s, and even when the the downturns come, the population in Midland does not decrease. So, if they don't stay, I guarantee they're leaving the children because the schools are still full. <laughs> so, I think we're going to have an ongoing challenge because we have an ongoing opportunity, and quite frankly, we could lose people right now. And it, be nice to some level because it takes pressure off of uh, the roads and the schools and everything else. So I don't see it as a problem if, if the price of oil goes down a little, which I think it is right now. Uh, Midland could use the breather to some level to get ready for the future because no matter what, these oil companies are getting ready for a, a, a growth number that's pretty remarkable. And uh, Midland's going to be right in the middle of it, as is the Permian Basin.
0: Uh, any timeline on when you're going to get this $100 million or, or what?
7: Well, I would be afraid to say it. I really would because, uh, you know, they've got a group that's pretty well hired and put in place, and they're starting right now to do their strategic homework and kind of begin to look at it. But, I, you know, if you look at $100 million across the Permian Basin, it sounds like a lot of money. But uh, – As you look at Midland and Odessa and the entire Permian Basin, I mean Midland doesn't just get the 100 million, there's other cities out here that uh, should and could and deserve the help. So uh, I don't want to say 100 million is not enough, but I will tell you 100 million is not enough. Just getting started. Uh, Just getting started.
0: Bobby Burns, President and CEO of the Midland Chamber of Commerce. Mr. Burns, thanks again for speaking with us on the Texas Standard.
7: Thanks for having me.
0: Got plans? flight plans could cost you. Dallas Morning News reporting some 90,000 fares on Southwest taking off this in response to what the carrier anticipates as cost challenges in 2019, technology upgrades, new planes, expanded facilities, etc. Now, the increases aren't that much, to be honest, two to five bucks one way, but they could portend further increases in an industry where prices have been rising for months. Want to push back? Consumer reports suggest searching for fares multiple times over multiple days, Shopping both at airline websites as well as third-party sites, since you can usually cancel bookings within 24 hours of making a reservation, usually Careful there.
1: Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org.
9: From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Texas is spending a lot less money these days on its Early Childhood Intervention Program. The state-funded program serves children under three years of age who have disabilities and developmental delays. A new study from the advocacy group Texans Care for Children shows that in 2012, the state legislature provided $484 per child enrolled in the program. By this year, that figure was $412, a 15% drop in in funding. Stephanie Rubin, the group's CEO, says these funding cuts have left providers in the program in a bind. It's really a troubling
10: picture for families with little kids with disabilities who need the services to communicate, to walk, to get ready for school, all the things we really want them to do.
9: Rubin says lawmakers should increase spending on the program in the coming legislative session starting January 8th. Rice University has launched an investigation into one of its professors who allegedly helped create genetically modified babies in China. As Houston Public Media's Laurie Johnson reports, Rice officials say they had no knowledge of the work performed by Professor Michael Deem. On Sunday, the Associated Press quoted Rice bioengineering professor Michael Deem as saying he helped with the research in China that led to genetically modified twin girls being born. Deem also served as an academic advisor to the Chinese scientist He Jin-Kui when He was a graduate student at Rice. Deem also holds a, quote, small stake in Hu's two companies. In a statement, Rice University said the work described in the AP report violates scientific conduct guidelines and is inconsistent with the ethical norms of Rice and of the scientific community. The school is investigating Deem's involvement. In Houston, I'm Laurie Johnson. Our world is marked by a number of storied rivalries that have stood the test of time and driven the discourse. Coke versus Pepsi, the Boston Celtics versus the Los Angeles Lakers, and an original American beef that inspired a hit Broadway musical, Aaron Burr versus Alexander Hamilton. Oh,
6: Alexander Hamilton. Alexander
9: Now a Texas House member wants to make sure the rivalry between the state's two flagship universities is enshrined in law. State Representative Lyle Larson has filed a bill ahead of the 2019 legislative session that would require the University of Texas at Austin and Texas A&M University to play a non-conference regular season football game each year. The San Antonio Republican happens to be an Aggie himself. The annual grudge match ground to a halt when A&M left the Big 12 and moved to the Southeastern Conference, the last time the teams faced off was 2011. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogle for the Texas Standard.
1: Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Fort Lonesome, Texas-based chain-stitch embroidery design and tailor-made custom western wear on Instagram and at ftlonesome.com.
0: 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard time. I'm David Brown. Education promises to be a big deal in the upcoming session of the Texas Legislature, but as lawmakers learn what needs to be done, teachers are learning a thing or two from their students. As part of an intimate look at education statewide, a partnership with the Teacher Project at Columbia Journalism School, Texas Public Radio's Camille Phillips takes us into a Head Start classroom on San Antonio's South Side, where half the students have disabilities and half don't.
10: Rebecca Azuna had been teaching special education for six years when three-year-old Naomi Campos
11: came Zooming into her classroom at a Meet the Teacher event. She just kind of like came right in full force. Mom was like just emotional, crying, trying to fill out paperwork. The dad's like patting mom on the back like, it's okay, it's okay, you know, she's going to be fine. And Naomi's like tearing up the room. (laughs)
10: Naomi's mom, Rebecca Campos, remembers Azuna reassuring her. We have children with her speech delay. We have children in wheelchairs. We have children who are autistic. She's gonna fit right in, mom, don't worry. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I've heard that before. Naomi was developmentally delayed by two years and even further behind in speech. She was three, but her mom says she spoke like an eight or nine month old. My husband and I were so worried that she was either gonna stay where she was with, you know, barely saying one to three, barely saying A, B, C, or continue to move back or not even wanna try or just shut down. The first few weeks of school were a struggle for Naomi. Azuna says the preschooler didn't like to be told what to do.
11: The very beginning, it was a lot of yelling, a lot of like stomping the feet and maybe like you know slamming the hands on the lap. And then it would, you know, we'd walk over to her and it's like, teacher, teacher, no. And it was like a lot of like the drawn out crying. Azuna says that happened pretty much every day for
10: the first two months. Nothing the teacher said or did made a difference.
11: I could easily write those things down and say she needs a more restrictive environment. You know, she's throwing blocks in class. She's going to hurt somebody. <laughs> and I didn't want to do that.
10: Then the time came for first quarter report cards. The results were discouraging.
11: I kind of looked at where she was and pacing wise um, within her own goals and objectives. And she she wasn't there. So some of the items for like, you know, doing shapes and letters and counting They just, they weren't there.
10: Azuna realized that if she didn't find a way to reach Naomi, the three-year-old would continue to speak and act like a one-year-old. Naomi wasn't learning because she wouldn't participate in class, but harping on her to change her behavior did nothing. So Azuna went back to the drawing board.
11: I started to change my thinking of... um, you know, making sure that she's in compliance with everything that we do in the day to am I meeting her needs as a child with, you know, a disability and um, am I going off of her abilities in our classroom? Am I using her strengths in our classroom?
10: Naomi likes to take charge. So Azuna started giving her opportunities to be a leader. At first,
11: it kind of just threw her for a loop that we were like a little more accepting of, you know, different things that she was doing. and so but it was like an easy transition for her in the terms of, well, like finally, now that they're gonna listen to me, and I've been trying to show them this whole time that I could do this stuff. Naomi likes to be
10: active, so during story time, Azuna had her help tell the story by acting it out.
11: It went from her completely not caring what we were doing and like hiding under tables to, oh, let's do that that part, he's doing a chant, and like clap, 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 or like, you know, patting your legs. BY THE END
10: OF HER FIRST YEAR IN PRE-K, NAOMI'S MOM SAYS HER DAUGHTER WAS EXCITED TO GO TO SCHOOL. SHE POPPED UP LIKE A ROCKET. THEY SAW WHAT THINGS INTERESTED HER, AND THEY USED THAT TO GET TO HER LITTLE BRAIN. BY THE END OF HER SECOND YEAR IN PRE-K, NAOMI HAD ALMOST caught UP TO WHERE A FIVE-YEAR-OLD IS EXPECTED TO BE DEVELOPMENTALLY. SHE WAS SPEAKING IN FULL SENTENCES, SINGING AND COUNTING. Azuna says sometimes she thinks about what would have happened if she hadn't been able to reach Naomi. She would have stayed two, three, four years behind. And that would have set the bar lower for the rest of her academic career.
11: I feel like she came a long way. And even now when mom tells me like, oh, her kinder teacher, and I'm like, man, if her kinder teacher saw her when she was three, she'd be like, wow.
10: (laughs) Naomi still
11: has a slight speech
10: delay and sees a behavioral therapist but the school decided she was ready for a general kindergarten classroom instead of a special education class. Her mom says she had a bit of a rough start again this year, but whenever she starts to worry, she texts Azuna, and she's reminded how far Naomi has come. In San Antonio, I'm Camille Phillips for the Texas Standard.
0: That story was produced in collaboration with a teacher project at the Columbia School of Journalism. Coming up on 39 Minutes Past the Hour.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at SaveNowForCollege.org.
0: This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. It is a tale of two politicians, one a Republican dealmaker who once held the highest foreign policy position in the U.S., the other a Democrat who served as senator before becoming president. James Baker and Barack Obama came together on a stage in Houston last night to celebrate 25 years of Baker's namesake Economic Institute at Rice University. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider was there. Much of the event focused on the importance of bipartisanship and how
12: that had broken down in the years between when Baker came to Washington and when Obama took office. The two agreed that the changing media landscape played a big part.
13: In 1981, your news cycle was still governed by uh, the stories that were going to be filed by AP, Washington Post, maybe New York Times, and the three broadcast stations. Right.
12: Obama said that whether they got their news from Walter Cronkite or David Brinkley, people tended to agree on a common set of facts. That's at a baseline around which both parties had to adapt and respond to.
13: By the time I take office, what you increasingly have is a a media environment in which if you are a Fox News viewer, you have an entirely different reality than if you are a New York Times reader.
12: Obama noted other causes for that division, then he pointed to the costs. He said one of the biggest revelations to him when he took office was the degree to which the U.S. underwrites international order.
13: If there's a problem around the world, people do not call Moscow, they do not call Beijing, they call Washington. Even our adversaries expect us to solve problems and expect us to keep things running.
12: And here he took a swipe at the current administration. Without naming President Trump, Obama talked about the costs of dysfunction in Washington, making it difficult to make decisions, and the undermining of career civil servants, particularly in the State Department.
13: That doesn't just weaken our influence. It provides opportunities for disorder to start ramping up all around the world and ultimately makes us less safe and and makes us less prosperous.
12: That led the evening's moderator, historian John Meacham, to pivot the discussion to how U.S. foreign policy has shifted under the current administration. Secretary Baker blasted Trump's attacks on the alliances and institutions that helped the U.S. win the Cold War.
6: This president is right in one respect for sure. NATO needs to, our European allies need to pay their way what they've agreed to pay. And we, don't, we shouldn't be required forever to pick up the tab on that. But these institutions make America stronger, and we ought not to be uh, running them down.
12: Those included not only military alliances, but also economic institutions. Obama echoed the point, but he noted that supporters of that global model, himself included, became a little too comfortable.
13: We did not adapt quickly enough to... The the fact that there were people being left behind.
12: Others had, and the results started playing out during Obama's tenure, shaping the outcome of the 2016 election and driving policy ever since.
13: You start getting politics that's based on, uh, that person's not like me, and it must be their fault. And you start getting the politics based on a nationalism that's not pride in country, but hatred for somebody on the other side of the border.
12: Towards the end of the evening, Obama reflected on his time in the Oval Office, saying he and his predecessors shared a reverence for the office independent of themselves. He declined to mention his successor. In Houston, I'm Andrew Schneider.
0: Time travel is a concept humans have been thinking about long before a certain DeLorean went racing into the horizon and back to the future. Fiction? Well, physicist Stephen Hawking didn't rule it out. Indeed, a week from Saturday marks what's called pretend-to-be-a-time-traveler day. But come on, why pretend? Commentator W.F. Strong says thanks to some noteworthy authors, Texans have been time-traveling for some time now.
8: Frederick Law Olmsted left us such a book about his travels through Texas in the early 1850s, it is called A Journey Through Texas or A Saddle Trip on the Southwestern Frontier. With his brother, he traveled several thousand miles around Texas on horseback, chronicling his experiences for the New York Times. Today, we'd call him a blogger. It is an intricate mural of Texas and Texans a decade after becoming a state while the entire country headed toward civil war. Before I share a few of his observations, let me tell you who he was. He was a farmer, and eventually he became the most famous landscape architect in America. He designed Central Park in New York and Niagara Falls State Park, as well as the grounds of the U.S. Capitol and the White House. He arrived in Nacogdoches in January of 1853 and then meandered on horseback all over Texas. He explored the Piney Woods, the Hill Country, the Coastal Plains, Southwest Texas, and even rode a ways into Mexico. Frederick Law Olmsted wrote often of the famous Texas northers because he was several times caught out in open country with sudden fierce winds and rapid drops in temperature. He wrote that a norther hit them on the prairie west of the Brazos. The wind kicked up mightily and the temperature dropped 12 degrees in 12 minutes, from 67 to 55. He wrote, in five minutes, we had all got our overcoats on and were bending over against the wind in our saddles. By 6 that evening, it was 40 degrees. The next morning, it was 25 degrees. Olmsted said he couldn't get his horse shooed that day because the blacksmith said he wouldn't work as long as the damn norther lasted. He loved New Braunfels, loved it with a capital L. The German community is a natural magnificence of the lands along the Guadalupe River were so impressive to him that he almost stayed in Texas. He was enchanted by the springtime wildflowers in the hill country and he fully embraced the German saying that the sky is nearer in Texas. Riding out west to Eagle Pass, he killed an enormous six-foot rattlesnake. A man came by and told him he had just killed an even bigger one up the road a ways. Olmsted worried constantly in the daytime that his horse would get bit, and at night he worried that a rattler would snuggle up with him in his bedroll. On this part of his journey, he saw his first horny toads, and so loved the little creatures that he shipped some back to New York, where he kept them as exotic pets for a couple of years. In San Antonio, it was the river he fell in love with. We are so struck by its beauty, he wrote. It is of a rich blue and pure as crystal, flowing rapidly but noiselessly over pebbles and between reedy banks. But it was still the Wild West, too, he wrote of the near-weekly gunfights in the plaza. As the actors are under excitement, their aim is not apt to be of the most careful and sure. Consequently, it is not seldom the passers-by who suffer. Although Olmsted didn't arrive in the South as a staunch abolitionist, he saw the contrast between slave-based economies and those that relied on paid labor and found the latter far more successful. He objected to slavery on moral grounds as well, but found that pro-slavery advocates responded best to arguments based on pragmatics rather than righteousness. Take a horseback ride through Texas with Olmstead. It's the best option in time traveling now available. I'm W.F. Strong. These are stories from Texas. Some of them are true. ¶¶
0: W.F. Strong is a Fulbright Scholar and Professor of Culture and Communication at the University of Texas RGV. His stories from Texas are available at texastandard.org, on iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. Coming up on 49 Minutes Past the Hour.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to provide mid-market companies a real-time view of their financials, cash, and liquidity while streamlining accounting processes. More at softwareaspromised.com.
0: You're listening to Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. A group said that Texas Congressman John Culberson, quoting here, was caught using campaign cash on collectibles, including Civil War memorabilia and fossils, Close quote. Well, was this spending claim on the money? Back with us to sift through the facts. And the not-so-much Gardner-Selby on behalf of the fact-checking PolitiFact Texas project based at the Austin American Statesman. Good to see you again, sir. Yes, sir. So let's back up just a little bit here. Did Congressman Culberson face this charge while seeking re-election?
14: Of course he did. Of course he did. Now let's update here. Uh, Most folks will know that Culberson, a Houston Republican who has long represented the state's 7th Congressional District, Mm He lost his race to Democrat Lizzie Pennell Fletcher. She's going to be sworn in next year. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, There's a lot of conversation
0: about a very closely watched race. So how did Culberson's spending end up drawing a fact
14: check in the first place? the campaign arm of the Environmental Defense Fund Mm -hmm. sent a mailer to voters saying that Culberson was caught using campaign cash on collectibles, as you just said, including Civil War memorabilia and fossils.
0: All right, uh, could you clear up something from the top here? Isn't it legal for lawmakers to buy, I don't know, uh, certain trinkets and the like using campaign contributions?
14: You've got it. If those items are of nominal value Uh and if they're given as gifts to others, not to family members. Now, PolitiFact reporter Stephen Koffe noted in his review of this claim that Nancy Pelosi, the incoming House Speaker, she spends campaign money on white orchids. (laughs) White orchids.
0: Okay, well, there you are. Uh, Well, let's get back to Culberson, shall we? Did this group's claim about his purchases
14: check out? Culberson's campaign advised at the time that Culberson, a Civil War buff, purchased coins and stamps that he did pass along to constituents as gifts. In mm-hmm. 2014, his campaign reported spending $3,600 on coins from an antique coin seller. 2009-2010, hmm. it reported spending $4,100 on antiques and coins for gifts. For gifts.
0: Uh, now, did Culberson's camp also confirm expenditures on uh,
14: fossils? That's the question you wanted to ask. Uh-huh. Spokeswoman Katherine Kelly cried foul on that part of the crime. She, she said, no, that ain't so. Culberson purchased books and maps only. In keeping with his desire, she said, to learn more about the planet and its history. Records show, for instance, that in 2011-12, the campaign spent more than $9,000 on research or research materials, mostly coming from vendors like Amazon and Barnes & Noble.
0: Did I understand you to say that this is in keeping with his desire to learn more about the planet? <laughs> right. and well, its he had a
14: big, big job up there in Congress, and, and part of it was thinking about how the planet, global warming, whether it was man caused or not, that kind of thing. Okay, uh, but what about gift fossils? No, no gift fossils. Well, Politifact dug into this aspect. Uh, right? I saw what you did. What there. happened? The reporter reached out to the Black Hills Institute, which filled orders from Culberson's campaign in 2012. An invoice from that outfit reveals. $60 got spent on wall charts of the Earth's history now don't be making fun of this. I'm not also Culberson's campaign purchased an $84 desktop model of a Triceratops and David two $40 fossil replicas of a Tyrannosaurus Rex tooth two fossil replicas So fake fossils
0: in essence of oh, a dinosaur tooth. Yes Okay So, what about uh, Culberson's spokesperson? Did did uh, did she speak to that detail?
14: Plaintiffs circle back. Kelly, the spokeswoman, noted the invoices show Culberson did not buy actual fossils. Oh boy! Now she elaborated generally that these purchases were required as gifts, as permitted by law.
0: Is this going to come down to whether the fossils
6: were (laughs) actual fossils? Is
0: that what we're going to get to? We're inching forward. All right. So, how did this historical claim in the heat of campaign season? come out on the PolitiFact
14: Texas Truth-O-Meter. Culberson bought old items to give away, including a pair of replica fossils, not fossils. Editors rated this claim, mostly true.
0: Mostly true, says PolitiFact Texas, regarding a claim that Texas Congressman John Culberson Spent campaign money on collectibles like Civil War memorabilia and fossils, including fake ones. Gardner-Selby represents PolitiFact Texas. Gardner, thanks. We'll see you next week. You bet. And you are listening to The Texas Standard.
5: Fake fossils, do you believe it? Man, that's the tooth, I yeah, guess. Well, the whole know, tooth and nothing but what the T Rex teeth. What are those, those
0: fake shark's <laughs> teeth that come in little jars that you can buy at Galveston? Anyway, those are fake.
5: Whatever man don't tell my don't tell my son he'll be really yeah. upset to yeah no, they're that. probably real they're probably real it's it's, it's
0: my bad hey uh, that's wells dunbar he's our social media editor what are uh, they talking about on the socials today
5: well here's some of the stuff we're hearing energy companies efforts to boost infrastructure in west texas which we heard about earlier how west texas has sort of become a victim of its own success with the drilling boom out there inspiring some reactions kate payne tweets us that we blew out a tire just two weeks ago on a massive pothole in midland when we were out there for my husband's grandfather's funeral. The roads are awful right now. And as we heard in that interview, David, uh, it's got a big undertaking there to improve not just the roads, but the sort of general infrastructure, schools and all Mm -hmm, sorts of mm -hmm. things. So it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Indeed. Another story we heard about earlier sure got folks talking. I think you might know which one. We heard it in the roundup. A bill filed for the 2019 legislature, which would force a game between Texas A&M and the University of Texas. Yeah. interesting
0: uh interesting uh, with force a game you have a lot of forcing uh, football football <laughs> yeah. only in texas maybe i'm trying to think i mean i don't i don't think many other states would yeah. consider doing that but
5: yeah maybe not maybe but wrong. obviously folks have a lot of opinions on this one adam easterwood on our facebook page says this is the legislative equivalent of a temper tantrum because the representative lyle larson and aggie doesn't like the fact that ut has a resounding winning wec- record record Excuse me, there. A winning and got, record, <laughs> a winning record, and got the last laugh in College Station in the process. I enjoyed this rivalry as a UT fan and alum, but to withhold funds or scholarships if uh-huh. they don't resume is a joke, and it actually does pretty heavy have a duty. clause in there yeah. uh, calling for such a thing. Chris Burton adds, "The A and M left if they want to play UT so bad they should have thought about that. They just <laughs> want to have their cake and eat it too." And well, Tom that. Tom Getty says he would love to see them play again, but dislikes rather that someone is trying to legislate it. And And have about, uh, you know, no exaggeration, about 15 or 20 comments uh, similar to this one here from Jeff Flory, who said, don't Texas lawmakers have more important things to do? Hmm interesting question. Maybe that.
0: maybe so. Uh, we, 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 of course, it's something that we're going to be covering as the legislative session gets underway. And not so long from now. Uh, yeah, not, something like, yeah. it's
5: like about 40 days or something. Uh, it, it's it, like right it around that? the corner. It's oh, crazy. Go. It's gonna you know, uh, speaking of important stuff, a little bit of, uh, I believe, breaking news uh, here uh, recently. President Trump expected to extend the deployment of thousands of U.S. troops at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, in We were talking about that yeah. a little
0: bit at the top of the show, too.
5: Yeah, yeah. Rather than withdrawing in the middle of December, as we heard, with this idea that everyone would be home by Christmas. I guess uh, potentially some troops could return by Christmas because uh, I'm also seeing reports that uh, members may be switched out for new troops. So some this people could part... go home and they could con- and send new people to uh, continue, I guess, this, this patrol, uh, which is what you would call it, of the U.S.-Mexico border. This, there.
0: by the way, is part of the Plan B that Washington Post was reporting if he didn't uh, get the funding, funding for yeah. the wall that uh, this might happen. I don't know if you've seen this breaking story. Mm. Houston Chronicle's Got it. it. Says authorities have raided the offices of the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston uh, for additional evidence in the case of a Conroe priest accused of sexual misconduct. See, yeah,
5: photos of pulling stuff out of the office. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. This is one of many stories we continue to track here at the Texas Standard. And the news continues online at TexasStandard.org. Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast, but we're going to be back here tomorrow. And we hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown, wishing you a wonderful Wednesday.
1: Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and St. David's Foundation. Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard.